welcome back to the Atlanta ATL Career Journey Podcast. Uh, today's podcast guest is Vicki Rosamann. Um, Vicki is uh, a long friend of mine. I started working with her back in Earthlink back in 2005. Uh, really, really smart person. Um, we have uh, some similar family interests with our daughters being in dance together, but um, Vicki is here to kind of talk through her career journey and what that looks like. Um, she's currently a strategic engagement manager at Akamai, but uh, welcome to the podcast, Vicki. Thank you so much for having me on, Paul. I appreciate it. So nice yeah. to catch up. Yeah, likewise. I know that uh, I enjoyed working with you and um, just keeping up with your career over the years. And so uh, just want to hear a little more background about you. So, um, so you're, where did you first get started? Like, tell me where you grew up and uh, kind of how you got in, into school and where you went and what you sure. studied. Well, um, I was uh, born in Uzbekistan, and so far away from uh, Atlanta, Georgia, <laughs> and I grew up there uh, till I was about 11 years old. And when I turned 11, I immigrated to Atlanta with my parents as a refugee, and uh, have been uh, lived in, I guess, Michigan for a little while when my dad was going to school, and then moving to New York, and then back to Atlanta because it's really the best place to be, I think, in terms of weather. Um, I've actually have an interesting journey in terms of my high school education. I spent, I graduated a year early from high school and I spent every year in a different location. So I started out in Hancock, Michigan for my freshman year and then moved on to Saginaw where my dad worked for Equifax, uh, my sophomore, and then in Rochester, New York, finished off my junior year. So I have um, a great background in terms of different high schools, the types of environments, depending whether you're in a small city like Hancock that had about 3000 population or uh, a larger city uh, like Saginaw, Michigan to, at the time, I think it had maybe 50,000. And then we moved to Rochester, which had 300,000. So wow. it, as you kind of, uh, yeah, take on the high school experience, I think you kind of realize uh, just everything has its positives, I guess, a negative, the smaller schools, you kind of have your group of friends that you went through, you know, elementary to high school, your families know each other. I always said that the rumors spread so quickly that by the time you got home from school, your neighbor already knew what happened to you. So there was really no way to hide anything. And then uh, my sophomore year, I, I really enjoyed because we moved to Saginaw and the school had, I think, 2000 students in high school. And I think that's for the the first time I knew like I could get away with a lot more stuff and meet a lot more people. And so, so you used it to your advantage, right? <laughs> I did. I, I absolutely loved it. I'm like, uh, there were so many clubs. I started a Russian club and uh, my friends uh, were a part uh, with me with Science Olympiad. And then there was an Earth Vision program that we did on Saturday, which was actually part of EPA and um, supercomputer initiative where we got to learn Fortran and that's probably was my first kind of introduction into computer uh, science for myself and okay. I really enjoyed that program a lot so I always encourage students to maybe if you don't want to do it on Saturdays which I completely understand that to at least try out different programs um, and try out different skills and so that was really my introduction because at the time I was a hardcore environmentalist I thought you know, we needed to save the world and very idealistic in yeah. many ways um, at the age of 15, 16. So for me, this was the perfect combination of working on, you know, environmental projects using the supercomputer kind of power behind it. 
Um, That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's to, to be at that age and to kind of think that broadly is, is pretty amazing. So did you? Yeah, um, I really enjoyed it. Um, and that was fun. That's where I think I met a lot of friends and, uh, and Science Olympiad was another part. So I think math and science always came easier to me just because English was my second language. And that's where I, I felt like I was stronger at the time. Yeah. And so by exposing myself to these other areas where I could apply math and science, um, I took two math classes at the time. I took algebra and geometry to kind of catch up because one of the things about sometimes smaller schools is that their you know, education or their academics might not be as advanced as in larger schools. You don't have mm -hmm. as many opportunities for AP classes, for example. Um, right. So it allowed me that year was kind of my catch up year and kind of exposure in terms of clubs and um, also sports. So it's always, and then, and then I moved to Rochester, New York, and that's where I spent my junior year. And Rochester, New York, Brighton high school there uh, was one of the top high schools. And to be honest, it took me about half a year to kind of catch up because while Saginaw was a big high school and exposed you to a lot of things, it wasn't as academically challenging as, as Brighton was. So it was really like heads down for me, just trying to make sure that I could uplevel myself to the same uh, level as the rest of the students that were going to the high school. Um, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. A big transition too. I mean, now, did you have siblings? I did. I have a sister who's five years younger and uh, she's uh, so she was she was lucky enough to spend the high school years in the same high school. But she did also, of course, move around so she, elementary and middle yeah. school with us. Yeah. And it's, that's hard to be a high school um, student and to move that much where you have to kind of pick up and go. So did that. Um, so coming out of high school, did that uh, affect your college selection or um, tell me about your, your thought process going into college. Yeah, absolutely. So I was lucky that when I, my parents gave me the responsibility every time we moved to find the best high school in the area we were moving on, into. So I would do all the research around, you know, what was the average SAT scores, GPA, graduation rate, and then they would essentially find an apartment or a home where we would then, um, live. And so when I was looking at Brighton High School and I was comparing it, the graduation, even though it was academically challenging high school, the graduation requirements for it were only 18 credits. And so by essentially taking um, the classes I've already taken the first couple of years and just having kind of a, you know, six classes that year, I was able to graduate early. And so some folks thought it would kind of you know, looking back, it would be a disadvantage, but I applied to Rochester Institute of Technology, University of Rochester, which is considered one of the best schools. And then yeah, it's really Stony good. Brook um, in New York. So most of the schools I applied to for college were in the Northeast, just based on, at the time I had my boyfriend, who's uh, now my husband. So I wanted to, to be closer um, closer Sometimes it's parents. amazing how uh, significant other can affect your college decision, absolutely, right? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and um, I actually got into almost every school I applied to. I was very lucky at the time, and um, University of Rochester gave me, um, you know, computer science and Rochester Institute of Technology, and then I got into the STEM program at Stony Brook, and 
um, I chose RIT because, you know, at the time they had the better computer science program and they actually gave me more scholarship money. So sometimes it's more of a financial I yeah. guess, consideration as well as kind of education, like where can you get the best value for your money mm-hmm. um, at the time, you know, based on the degree you kind of choose. And, and computer science was a degree just because my parents were both working in the computer science field uh, and given my inclination to math and science and just being naturally good at those subjects, it seemed like a good fit. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So what did you study? You studied computer science. Did you minor in anything or were you involved um, in any other activities? I don't remember. Um, you know, I think maybe I've minored in management. I, I, so when I started, I just did computer science. To be honest, that first year of computer science was incredibly difficult uh, just because programming is not really like math or pure math or pure science. Mm-hmm. And I did not take any programming. Well, besides the Fortran that I did in 10th grade, like I didn't really have the object oriented programming background and it was very intense that first year just trying to write all the programming assignments that were assigned to me so that's probably um, was kind of very challenging and to be honest I I thought a few times where I could like well can I just you know maybe do like application like do application science or maybe go into business because it just seemed like it was it was just much harder than I expected and um, my my dad then got a job in Atlanta, actually working for Equifax. And uh, small world, I didn't realize your dad was an yeah. Equifax employee. I worked there for a while, and uh, yeah. we moved to Atlanta. So I decided to move with my family, and I transferred to what is now Kennesaw State University. Okay. But at the time, it was Southern Poly. Southern Tech. Yep. Yep. And so again, um, I was very lucky uh, with my advisor there who kind of sat down with me and said, he transferred a lot of my RIT credits. So I didn't really lose a lot of the time. And given, you know, the opportunity we have here in Georgia, just with the Hope Scholarship, at the time I didn't qualify for it because we were out of state, but even with the out of state tuition, it was just so much more affordable um, than, yeah. you know, RIT even was at the time, just full, full-time tuition. Gotcha. So you finished up at, at Southern Poly. Um, I did. And I think a big part of like Southern Poly actually gave me an internship opportunity at Lockheed Martin. So Southern Polytechnic at the time had an internship uh, program with Lockheed Martin. So I got a job there. And so while I was going to school, I was working at Southern, you know, at Lockheed Martin 20 hours a week. Mm-hmm. And they were paid, you know, at the time, it's like $13 an hour, which seemed like <laughs> a huge amount of Big money. Big money at the time, right? Exactly. It's like, uh, and you know, if, if you really combine the 20 hours, it pretty much paid for my education just because it's, you know, it was so affordable. Yeah. And, uh, and just exposed me to this interesting world, right? Because uh, as you know, Lockheed Martin builds, you know, military airplanes. So I got to work on the C-130J program. I got to walk inside the C-5 program. And oh, actually wow. part of it was um, building the software for the simulator. So before the airplane actually obviously takes off and then pilot is put in place, and it's a very expensive machinery, right? It costs millions of dollars. So quality assurance, making sure the software on an airplane like that works is critical. And so what happens is that it actually, they have a simulator and the pilots actually test the software within the simulator before they go ahead and actually fly it. And so I got to write the requirements for some of the simulator uh, software 
which was essentially the same, right? It mm-hmm. was just reproduction of an actual software, but it needed to be tested. So it exposed me. And one of my funnest experiences was actually flying with it because, you know, when the pilots didn't have that, you could actually have some time. And they let me, like, you know, press the buttons and fly <laughs> and realize how, like, uh, you know, how incredibly complex it was yeah. and how amazing that autopilot you know, the software that actually has, you know, the autopilot software is just incredibly um, amazing in terms of what it's able to do. So that, you know, for a kid, that's, that's, that was pretty exciting. And yeah, um, I really enjoyed that internship. So I'm always encouraging others. Like, I think, you know, book knowledge is important, but there's just so much you get just by putting yourself into an environment where you can, you know, learn from others, even if it's not like your long-term career path per se, but it's, yeah, you have that exposure. I think that's really great because sometimes you can kind of get so focused on just getting through school and internships. I think it become a bigger part of, of college students today than they were 20 or 30 years ago. But um, I think you, you do get some exposure to real world and it can, you know, possibly help you either, you know, if you wanted to, to pursue a job with, Lockheed Martin or Delta Airlines or anybody else that you have interned with um, certainly gives you that insight, but it also can kind of tell you, you know what, I thought I wanted to be, you know, a mechanical engineer and work in a power plant, but I really don't have the passion for it. So I'm going to try something different. So it does give you that opportunity. That's a great point. Yeah. For me, it was more honestly just learning more about my personality because my, I'm a very creative and innovative person by nature. And Lockheed Martin, just to, based on the kind of things they produce, which is like airplanes, which have to be rigorously tested and mm-hmm. have to follow a lot of government processes. Government is the customer a lot of times for these airplanes. Um, really, um, and they're also a union shop. It really gave me um, a visibility into A, how unions work and the pros and cons, honestly, of unions and what happens in that kind of environment. And B, it allowed me to kind of see, you know, that some companies are a lot more process oriented versus maybe, you know, result oriented. And yeah. sometimes it's a good fit for your personality um, and sometimes it's not. So it kind of makes you learn things about yourself as you see yourself as part of certain environments. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Cause you do, you do a lot of growing, you know, um, in your college years and, yeah, part of it's to just kind of figure out who you are and what you want to do. Um, so getting that that insight was really critical for you, it sounds like. So you Absolutely. you graduated Poly. Um, what was your first job coming out of college? So Lockheed Martin did give me the um, the job. So All right. I was actually quite young. I finished Southern Poly in like another year. So it took me about <laughs> two and a half years to finish my undergrad. And I think when I met with the HR person and she said, what? you're like 19 years old and you're going to be paid this. I felt a little, I felt guilty. I'm like, um, yeah, but I, you know, I earned it. I have a degree. Um, but I still remember that experience and uh, you know, I was lucky that I, you know, that I was brought into the same department where I did my internship. And so Mm -hmm. I knew people already that made, I think that made my transition a lot easier too, because I already had my mentor there that helped me a lot. Um, and also I knew kind of what the job entailed. That helps. Yeah, that's really critical. I can't imagine for you, you know, once you sort of get advanced um, and jumping ahead grades in high school and then in college, sometimes your, your social network can <laughs> suffer, right. even though your academic achievements are 
you know, on, on track or even exceeding things. So. Absolutely. And it's, it's, I think I was just lucky because um, I formed really great relationships. I still actually keep in touch with my college friends. We still see each other and go to kids' birthdays parties. And so I had a group of girls, um, Elsa and Ruby, that were my great friends. And I think just having them alongside me, right, made things a little easier. Mm -hmm. Um, Just because, uh, to your point of that social component, like you want to go through college and you want to have those friends that kind of make you, you know, strive for more and compete with you. And uh, yeah. Ruby was definitely that friend for me because we still remember like we were competing for being number one in our class. <laughs> and I uh, last semester I took the statistics class and I did not do well. I mean, as well, I got a B. And so essentially that brought me down. She got the she was a number one student, but we still talk about it in, in jest. Right. And her yeah. son when they, he meets with us, like, yeah, you're the girl that my mom, you know, got the first place over. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I'm that girl. So, but it's, um, it's fun, right? It's, it's, you want to surround yourself, I think, with people that make you become a better person. And that's something you, you want to do that no matter what stage in life you're with. And those people will change because you will change as a human being as you grow. Yeah. Yep. But you want to always try to be around people who are better than you because that's what's going to make you aspire to be a better person. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's 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 really insightful if you can figure out sort of I'm a competitive person, so I want to put myself in a situation where I want to compete because if if I don't have that that you know kind of competitive check, um, I don't know if I'm on track, behind, or ahead. And sometimes people thrive more in competition, and it can be fun as well. So yeah, it's. Um, that's definitely uh, something it's I've seen. Co- competition and cooperation. Like you want to. Yes. Yeah. It's kind of like both because if it's just competition, it's incredibly stressful, I think. Yeah. But if you know that at the end of the day, like whoever wins, like between Ruby and I, like whoever won, you know, yeah, it makes for a good story, but we're still friends so many years later and we celebrate our birthdays together and it's, it never impacted our friendship in that yep. way. So I yep. think you want to, you want to make sure that you are, um, I don't know, you just, you don't want to be around that, you know, like people who are mean. <laughs> because yeah. That's, I think I want to differentiate uh, between those because you could be, put yourself in a situation where you're around people who, where you'll never be good enough, no matter what you do. And not only is that stressful, but that actually impacts your self-esteem considerably. It doesn't allow you to kind of grow and be better. So I think you want to differentiate and, and be around people who are kind and nice and smart at the same time. And I know they're really, really hard to find, but if you can find that group of people, I think it's, it's going to benefit you long-term. Yeah. Those are lifelong friends and colleagues and, um, whether they're mentors or mentees or just, um, you know, uh, supporters, you know, those are, those are lifelong friends you keep. If you can find that combination, that's, Absolutely. that's amazing. So let's, let's fast forward a little bit. Um, I know we could talk for hours on our experience with Earthlink, but I do want to get to sort of, you know, where you are today and sort of how that path led you to where you are today. Yeah. Thank you. That's a great question. So you know, they always said that you, and this is something I've always struggled with, honestly, is that you should always have goals and you should set goals and you should strive for those goals. But to be honest, what I've kind of noticed about my own career is that 
you know, technology changed so quickly. And mm -hmm. what I've been really lucky with is I've always been a part of the phase of technology that's changed. So after Lockheed, I went to work for Deloitte and I was part of their initial e-business unit. So this is the first time companies were trying to do business online and they were innovating. And there were, I remember a project where we had to figure out a way that government could buy fire engines online mm. so we knew that the banks actually it was a bank of america project and the banks you know they knew the government would pay them and to procure a fire engine would take like it could take a year honestly it took so long just due to all the processes but the question was why did it have to be so long right and so by putting the process online to for the fire departments to procure these fire engines you could considerably compact that time to a very small amount of time versus years. And I think that was my first kind of exposure after my MBA that, um, that I was, I kind of saw the real application, the power of the technology mm -hmm. toward a, a business problem. And then, you know, at Earthlink, we worked on Wi-Fi and that was another shift, right? Today, yeah. everybody has Wi-Fi. We can't live without Wi-Fi, right? Yeah. But at the time, this was a brand new thing. And you and I were working to, you know, bring Wi-Fi to the city of Anaheim, the city of Philadelphia, where some of the more disadvantaged neighborhoods did not have access to that. And as a result, did not have access to a lot of the content and technology that was available in other places and yep. so that was kind of the other trend that happened um, yeah this was yeah because that was municipal wi-fi is how they branded it and it was for this digital divide that was becoming apparent where you know lower income neighborhoods didn't have access and obviously everything was going online learning and um, all sorts of things that you could really better yourself with and so that was like putting routers up on light poles and managing um, you know, signal strength through hills and concrete and walls. And yeah, it was... Um, Do you remember was, the subway story where the subway uh, oven was interfering with the Wi-Fi signal? Wasn't that in Anaheim? I think so. <laughs> yeah, there was, yeah, there was something. There was all kinds of things. I remember there was, yeah. there was some, uh, um, uh, some mischievous activity in Philadelphia where we kept having to replace the routers on the light poles because some of the local residents were... Uh, using it for target practice. So it was, yeah, it was, we had some interesting stories for sure. Yeah, it really made it for a lot of fun. And it just, you know, big thing that I remember I had to research was whether the Wi-Fi signal would impact people's health because there was, and I think a lot of people might still worry about it, that Wi-Fi impacts, you know, how our brain processes information. And so I remember doing a big project around that. Yeah. Um, and then the next job really was around Yahoo. And Yahoo, as you know, is like a search and content engine. And what I had to do there is, was pretty much a white label product with the AT&T Newverse um, to bring Yahoo content to their customers. And so that's where I got to put Yahoo content like finance. My first project was actually the fantasy football, like head to head information on the TV screen. So the idea was that person could go on the app, see how their teams are doing, and then still be watching their football uh, game. Yeah, you had my dream time. job, Vicky. I just want to tell you that. <laughs> I did not know much about football, so I had to learn everything from scratch. Um, our next thing I think was baseball. And that's where I had to rely on my husband a lot. And it was like, we were, so it's, yeah, it was fun. And the, the biggest thing, honestly, my own product that I spent most of the time was the remote DVR product, the U-verse remote DVR, where you could go and record your shows from your 
from the website or from your mobile device. Yep. And we completely redesigned that product and made it easier. And so that's the first time I actually got to experience that whole usability aspect. And the fact that how you think you use a product is so different than how your customer might use a product. Um, and so it's so important to, this is where I think I really understood the importance of understanding your user or your customer. Um, an example I'll give you is that at the time, um, most of the customers, for example, um, at AT&T were older. And so they were still on the old IE6 browser, but that browser had so many issues that no developer wanted to continue developing for it. They wanted yeah. the customer to upgrade. Yep. Um, but, but what we realized through research is that 30% of AT&T's customers were over the age of 55 and they did not upgrade their browser. So you would essentially completely disallow those customers from using your product unless they upgrade it, right? And yeah. so you had to really think about the user experience and spend time on customers, not what you're used to, but what your customers are used to. And I think that's where I've learned that differentiation. That's a great distinction because it may not be the best technology for what you want to do, uh, or if you build your platform on the latest and greatest technology, but your customers can't get to it, then it doesn't necessarily matter, right? Exactly. Yeah. You have to um, really understand your customer and relate to them, right? One of the other things is, for example, how people search for shows. Like, to me, it was so intuitive to use search. But when I actually did a user study, half the people were using search, but half the people were actually browsing. They were actually going to the, you know, the channel, finding that show and recording that show there. And to yeah. me, that interaction was so different than what I expected because I'm like, that takes way too long. Why would you browse through? hundreds of channels just mm -hmm. to find your show when you can just type in the name. And that's actually where I, I was able to develop a patent application. And it was a combination of myself and a developer and also the interaction designer. And what we came up with is when people search to make search easier, the name wouldn't just relate to the name of the show, but it could actually also show you channels they might be looking like Fox. It could be name of the show or it could be a channel that you're looking for. Yeah. Um, or even Megan Fox, right? It could be an actress uh, mm -hmm. that plays in the show. So be able to pull up results, not just based on the name of the show, but to be able to rank them and to suggest results across all three categories. Um, and so that was an interesting application to take a look at that and to kind of work through some of the logic that would be involved. And I, I really enjoyed that. That's awesome. So how did you get to uh, your so current Akamai. job? Akamai, yeah, yeah, current job. So yeah. that was my product role. That's where I was like working with marketing and business. And to me it was, and of course, telling engineers and, and designers what to do in terms of product. But um, then I kind of was walking more away from technology. So Akamai was actually my foray back into really computer science and IT because when I started there, I, Akamai puts you through a boot camp and essentially it's like three to four months that all you do is you go to school, you do whiteboards, you take tests and you essentially learn everything to know about the Akamai technology and the landscape and you present in front of your peers. And it's actually was an incredibly stressful time. And, and why I bring that up is that we always think that we are done learning when we finish our degree, whether it's high school, you know, you know, bachelor's, master's. But what I found throughout my career is that, yes, it was a great foundation and it, all those experiences taught me how to learn, but I had to always kind of reinvent and learn something new. And yeah. so going through that 
you know, process at Akamai, which is a company that was actually started uh, out of MIT. So it has a very strong academic base and education and learning is, I think is really part of a culture and also part of its core principles. And so for me to kind of go back, back to school, you know, in my old age was, it, it was <laughs> tough. It was a really tough experience. Uh, but I think I was better as a result of it. And then I started, of course, working with our customers. And I love the application, the technology. I love the variety that the customers brought um, mm -hmm. to the picture. And, and now, you know, over time, we've actually now we're a security company. So it went from a cloud company to a security company. And so learning security um, applications from the ground up. And what you realize over time is you're never going to be that expert, right? You're, you're always going to be learning, which means there's always going to be people who are better than you potentially in that area who've been in it longer. But what you kind of bring to the table potentially is that ability to kind of combine all your experiences and to solve business problems using technology. Because in the end, no matter what technology, how it evolves or what you do with it, you're really applying all the knowledge that you've kind of brought from all different areas of life, as well as the things you learn with the customer, because every customer has their own environment that they're going through. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really important point is that you really are never done learning. And, you know, we've seen such tremendous technology changes and in innovation. Um, you know, the internet certainly brought a lot of that to the forefront, but we're still seeing new things with artificial intelligence, machine learning, cloud technologies. I mean, the list goes on and on and five or 10 years from now will be something, you know, even different. And so, you know, what's, what's also been interesting for us as uh, the, is with the, the COVID situation and, and companies have had to sort of move to completely remote operations as, as much as they can. Um, there's a whole new shift in how we used to do even face-to-face -face meetings, right. To a, a virtual situation. So how's, how has um, these COVID changes affected you and how you do your work? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So my, my teams have, uh, at Akamai have been global. So I have people on the team from India and Costa Rica and, of course, different parts of the United States and Canada. But one of the things, uh, so that part hasn't changed as much because I was kind of used to working with people from different areas of the globe. Mm -hmm. The thing that um, I think changed for me is just not having as much that in-person interaction. Like I miss going into the office and just standing there, you know, with a colleague and discussing a problem kind of face to face. Um, and just having that interaction, like having that bigger interaction. I think we try to do that through Zoom, uh, but it's it's difficult because I think as humans, we're just, we're so used to having that face-to-face -face time. Yeah. Um, and so while I enjoy, you know, I, I, I really feel lucky that my family hasn't, you know, that I've been able to kind of work from home during this time as the children are at home kind of doing mm -hmm. homeschooling and now on the holiday break. Um, at the same time, I miss that component, honestly, of just having that in-person interaction. Yeah, I know what you mean, because I think that, you know, even with remote teams, I know that some of our um, resources in other countries have struggled with their ability to be able to work remote where they are, um, either with bandwidth issues or um, access to the Internet or other things that have been a challenge or, you know, you've got a computer, if you've got a contractor, but they can't bring it home, there's all sorts of things we had to think about that really didn't exist 
but um, the, the, the face-to-face interaction to me is really uh, something you can't completely get away from. I'm, I'm a visual person and I like to whiteboard as I talk to colleagues about things. And I have not been able to find a, a really good substitute for uh, a whiteboard on a wall with markers and people right there to collaborate with you, you know? It's, oh um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. It's, yeah. it's really hard. Yeah. And people collaborate differently, right, too, when mm-hmm. they're in kind of this virtual environment. I, I feel that it's hard to call on people because they might not be prepared to speak or yeah. there could be more interaction because you can't read their body language and, and the visual, to your point, and the body language is so much more, you know, in terms of our communication. It's not just the words they're saying. It's like, how are they feeling? Like, are they sure? You know, you can't really tell as much in that interaction. And so you end up guessing and a lot of times you could be wrong, right? In yeah. What they're trying to say. Yeah. It, it does strike a balance. Cause I think there's been, there's been other aspects that people have realized, wait, I've just saved three hours a day, potentially commuting. So I can actually, you know, put that time to use. If I'm a morning person, I can start really early. Um, I can start putting in a, you know, a workout at the end of the day instead of sitting in traffic. But I think the flip side is that there are things that you need to be able to have, conversations in person and um, being able to read their room. I think one of the things too is, you know, ideal team size. We don't necessarily have to have a meeting with 25 people on there when half of them are never going to speak, you know, so record it, post it somewhere. And if people want to listen to it later, um, they can kind of get that, that input as well. So yeah, there's all kinds of ways we can get creative with things. Those are, those are great ways. And I think if we look into the future and for the younger Folk, you know, folks that are listening to this, that are trying to figure out their careers, you know, as technology changes, where I see us being more impactful is around those visuals, like being really great at creative thinking, mm-hmm. being great at design, understanding how to synthesize information and bring in different areas of experience to create something new. I think while artificial intelligence will be able to take care of a lot of the jobs that we have that are very kind of task oriented and specific, they are, it's still not able to really take and adapt from many different areas to create something completely, you know, outside of the area that it specializes in. And I think that's where the new generation will need to focus is to bring that experience to technology. Um, and so I would really encourage people to think more about creativity, content creation, design aspects of technology as they kind of make their careers today. That's a great point. I think that's really great career advice and uh, it's something certainly for um, folks coming out of college or starting their career off, as well as even, you know, some of the older folks that are looking for a career change or a new path or, you know, if, if something's impacted you know, their existing job and, and they want to move into something different. Definitely a, a good advice to follow for anybody. Thank you. Thanks so yeah. much. Well, well, Vicki, it's been great talking to you. It's been great to catch up. Um, I think you've offered some really great advice uh, for the listeners. Um, and uh, I appreciate your time today and just kind of going through your career and how things have, have uh, um, unfolded for you. So thanks again yeah. for your time. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed this podcast. I look forward to listening to more of your uh, interviews. Yes. Yeah, so we'll have to bring you back for another session. We can talk more about our thing. Sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Vicky. Thank you.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.